You're listening to Bead, History for the Church, a conversation with Drs. Michael A.G. Haken and Mike Pullman. Dr. Haken serves as the Chair and Professor of Church History at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. Dr. Pullman is Associate Professor of Practical Theology and the Chair of the Department of the Ministry and Proclamation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of Broadcasting the Faith, Radio and Theology in America, 1920 to 1950. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. Upon the death of John Gill, who some people regard as the greatest Baptist theologian of the 18th century, one grief-stricken admirer found solace in writing a poem. Here's what he wrote. What doleful tidings strike my listening ear, or wound the tender feelings of my heart? Must the bright star forever disappear? Must the great man, the learned guild, depart? Zion may mourn, for grief becomes her well. To lose the man whose heaven-instructed pen taught knowledge clearly, while before him fell gigantic errors of deluded men. More recently than that uh, poem, eminent historian Timothy George wrote glowingly of John Gill. Here's what he said, quote, John Gill was the first Baptist to develop a complete systematic theology and also the first Baptist to write a verse-by-verse commentary on the entire Bible. A tireless scholar and writer, he published more than 10,000 pages during his lifetime, more than many ordinary mortals are able to read over a similar span undoubtedly the leading light among the Calvinistic Baptists of his day, Gill influenced an entire generation of younger ministers through his remarkable preaching and pastoral labors, which he discharged faithfully in the same congregation for nearly 52 years. Well, this is incredible uh, to hear some of the biography of John Gill. But Michael, as we take up John Gill uh, today on this episode. Given what we've just heard, why isn't John Gill always mentioned in a short list of outstanding Baptist pastor theologians? Yeah, that's that's a very good question. In, in light of what you've just read, the elegy there in his day, and, um, you know, one could easily say, well, the elegy, you know, it was glowing, but as time has gone on, uh, Gill's, Gill may have been prominent in that day, but he's not important. But the reality, he is important, as Timothy George points out. Um, the author of the first systematic theology in um, Baptist circles, um, his, body of practical, his body of divinity, then his body of practical divinity, uh, which runs to about 3,000 pages. And then... Um, his uh, commentary, verse-by-verse commentary on the Bible, which is um, easily um, twice the size of his body of divinity, maybe three times. So why hasn't he been more, more, more well-remembered? Well, I think in part it's because in the 19th century there is a reaction, the late 18th and 19th century, there is a reaction against systematic theology to some degree. Um, a very famous Baptist in his own day, Robert Hall Jr., was once in a conversation with the Welsh Baptist Christmas Evans, and Christmas Evans was lamenting that Gill didn't write initially in Welsh. 
um, and uh, Hall, who had, was quite a wit, said, well, yes, sir, I, I wish he had written in Welsh. Then I wouldn't have read him. Uh, John Gill, <laughs> Bill Gill's writings are a continent of mud, a continent of mud, sir. Yes, I remember uh, reading that thinking, wow, that thankfully I don't think anybody has said that about anything I've written or <laughs> that you've written, I trust. I don't know. Um, wow, so, <laughs> a continent um, of mud. I think that sort of attitude, and even Spurgeon, who appreciated Gill, uh, accused him of being a hyper-Calvinist, and he froze the congregation of which he was a part. And so the, the and especially when you move into the 20th century, there is a, a narrative about English Baptist life, which goes like this. Uh, in the early days, it's advance. Then uh, the 1690s begins decline. And what facilitates the decline is the hyper-Calvinism of John Gill. In other words, John Gill becomes the the um, the bad figure of the Baptist story. He's he's the culprit. He's the culprit for Baptist decline. And then at the end of the 18th century, there is a revival, missions, uh, Baptist involvement in social activities like um, the abolition of the slave trade. In other words, Gill becomes relegated to this uh, crusty. Um, scholastic figure whose writings were not really helpful. Uh, they they did not uh, promote revival. Uh, they hindered it. And um, so a, a combination of factors I think you have here. And um, the reality is that um, much of it is an urban myth. It's being passed down as reality. Um, and I wonder sometimes in some of the Baptist histories I've read, how many of them, you know, when they write Gill off, how many of them actually read Gill? That's a good question. And and I want to come back to some of these uh, uh, issues of, of why he was uh, relegated to to the periphery of, of Baptist memory, it would seem, by the end of the 18th century and on into the 19th century. But, you know, Michael, this is an opportunity for me to remind, you know, last week we introduced your new book, your latest book, uh, the Weekly Historian, and this really captures in, in the chapter, I think it's chapter 39, where you write on John Gill, you do say his legacy is complex. You use that word complex, and I think there's a lot of factors for that. You've alluded to some of them, and let's come back to those in, in some minutes here. But first, for our listeners, let's, let's, let's place Gill. Uh, let's put him in, in the context of the 18th century, when he did the lion's share of his work, right? And uh, who are his contemporaries? Where did he pastor? Where was he for those f almost 52 years? Uh, you're so good at doing that. Would you place him for mm. us? Yeah. 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 So Gil uh, lives uh, for most of that time in the 52 years that um, Timothy George talks about there. Uh, he's in London. He's at um, the church that would eventually become um, uh, the Metropolitan Tabernacle on the south sides of the Thames in Southwark. Uh, as it's known, um, and um, he um, he would have been the fifth or sixth pastor, maybe. Uh, you've got Benjamin Keach before him, Benjamin Stinton, uh, his son-in-law, right? That was Keach's son-in-law, I correct. think. And then and then here comes yeah, Gill. So Gill would have been the fourth pastor, maybe. I think there's one before Keach. And um, so so it's a, a very it's got a very rich history when Gill comes there. Gill is born in the Midlands in Northamptonshire in Kettering, which is intriguing because Kettering was probably a bit of a bastion of hyper-Calvinism. 
and it'll be in Kettering that John, uh, that Andrew Fuller will go as the pastor, who will be responsible for the demolition of hyper-Calvinism. So Gill is called to London in 1719. There is uh, controversy about his ministry in the early days. Um, it's quite. Clear. And of course, he almost he almost didn't go there, right? I mean, he was that story in of itself is amazing. Yeah. How he he almost split the church. Well, in fact, I think it did split. Uh, some opposition to his coming, but if I remember right, there were only ten people at his ordination service. There. Um, uh, that could. Is that accurate? I I haven't. Yeah, I don't know that. Yeah, that could be. But then, of course, it, it did flourish. But but in the providence of God, he weathered an initial storm uh, to actually become the pastor there. But. Yeah, and I think some of that's got to do with maybe the way Keach approached the memory of um, Benjamin. Sorry, the way Gill approached the memory of Benjamin Keach. Um, Keach was involved in the the confirmation of the Second London Confession, which Gill never uses. Gill Gill creates its own confession for the church because he's probably not happy with the, the view of justification in the second London confession, um, which is your normal reform view. But Gill was committed to eternal justification, which is the foundation. If he is a hyper Calvinist, and I think there are leanings there. That is the foundation of that. Um, so Gill comes to London. Then uh, there is uh, tension in the early days of his ministry. He weathers that. And, um, is invited in the 1730s to be a lecturer at the Lime Street Lectures, which are very prestigious uh, lectures. They probably make him in some ways, as well as is, um, is uh, one of his earliest books, a commentary in the Song of Songs, which will be incorporated into his big commentary in the Old Testament. But um, in, his, in his own lifetime, he was known as a um, for his commentary in the Song of Songs and his uh, eschatology. Um, he's got this very curious kind of a pre-millennial, post-millennial melange. Um, I've never been able personally to get my head around it. Um, but he did believe that some sort of post-millennial reign was going to begin in the 1880s. And until Interesting. That, I'll, we'll have to look at that's in his body of divinity, yeah, I'm sure. Until, until that uh, happened, it was useless to engage in missions. I um, see. Anyway, so Gill, Gill then is um, his contemporaries. Uh, um, there's a great story about uh, somewhere in the late 1740s where Gill is invited by Selina Hastings, the Countess of Huntingdon, to come for a, a weekday breakfast in which he asks him, would you be willing to say a word after breakfast? Well, I'm not sure if she told him who was going to be there, but it turns out uh, John Wesley's there. Uh, with whom he had crossed swords about Calvinism, uh, William Remain, James Harvey, who was a very close friend of of um, of uh, Gill's, um, and quite a it was a, a constellation of about five or six remarkable evangelical ministers, and um, that that little kind of snippet um, indicates that Gill's alive at the time of the Great Awakening in England mm -hmm. and the evangelical revival. And um, while Gill is preaching in Southwark on the uh, on the north side of the Thames, about two miles away maximum, uh, George Whitfield could be found, and Wesley could be found preaching. Um, what a time to be alive and yeah. be a pastor and be a preacher! So when you, I love how you're placing him here because look at his contemporaries. Uh, I don't know how much contact they had, uh, and you could maybe enlighten us there. But Wesley, Whitfield, 
course, Edwards across across the pond, as it were. Uh, and here's Gill, uh, but on the heels of Benjamin Keach, and then Fuller would come later. And what a dynamic time for gospel mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. advance and the the defense of orthodoxy. I mean, I, I, if I could here, Michael, get a little bit into some of his works. Uh, you bring up in your chapter in the Weekly Historian, again, a book I just think everybody needs to read. Uh, but there in that chapter 39, you make it clear that he was at the forefront of defending the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity. So he was trying to uh, advance against, was it the general Baptists that were basically uh, denying the deity of Christ? Uh, yeah, it's the, uh, yeah, uh, the general Baptists are, it's, they're probably not the main figures in his view. Um, okay. Gill would be more concerned about some Presbyterians who are basically arguing that the Trinity is a non-essential that um, Trinity wow. belief in the Trinity is not required for ordination. It's not required for a Christian minister. And um, <clears throat> the 18th century is a big, as uh, a, a century in which there is significant attack um, on the uh, doctrine of the Trinity. And um, so Gill um, Gill writes in the 1730s a book on the doctrine of Trinity. He'll later reprint it uh, about 30 years later. He incorporates a lot of it into his um, body divinity. And in many ways, uh, Gill is critical for the, the retention of orthodoxy within particular Baptist circles. And that's why I, I, his, his, his situation is complex. Um, I don't think uh, Gill is unjustly accused of hyper-Calvinist tendencies. I think that you don't think he is. You think that's an accurate no, assessment? I, I'm, I'm, I, I, I use a double negative there. Um, uh, <laughs> I think he is. I think he's. I think he does lean in that direction. Okay. Certainly yeah, that's what I think. Free offer of the gospel. Yeah. Um, he's critical of um, George Whitfield. We know that he's got he's got problems with the revival. Um, probably on two levels. One is. Uh, the free offer in the revival, but even more significantly for Gill, he's just got, he's just got problems with the state church. And and the, if, if Whitfield's really sent by God, he, well, if the first thing he should do is get out of get out of Anglicanism. You know, as far as as far as Gill's concerned, it's uh, Babylon, and um, the well, the Anglican church state church might not be the the whore of Babylon. She is definitely the daughter of the whore of Babylon. She has all kinds of quote unquote whorish features. You know the bishops and infant baptism and the union of church and state and uh, the well and 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 one one Arminian minister Daniel Whitby who Gill has no love for right <laughs> of course that's what he you know the cause of God and truth is really in response mm-hmm. to this extremely popular discourse on the five points I think it was called yep. by yep. by the Anglican uh, minister Daniel Whitby. And what I find interesting, I, I think he died in the 20s, in the 1720s, but that, that work of his, and you can check me here, but had such lasting power, lasting influence, that it was finally in the 30s that, that Gill says, I, I need to have a response, I need to take this up, which, yeah. which led to this six-year project of the cause of God and truth in four parts. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So I think you're, he had no love for the Church of England. <laughs> No, and uh, it was it was an apostate body for Gill. It's not a true church. So I think the fact that you've got men like Whitfield, I mean, the Wesleys are beyond the pale. They're Arminian. But even a guy like Whitfield, 
I mean, as some people said, I, I don't think I've ever seen Gill say this. I'm pretty certain he didn't. You know, Whitfield sound, says he's a Calvinist, but he sure sounds like he's he's got an Arminian accent. Did he say? Yeah, yeah. So that would be, you know, for Gill, this is just the, the 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 whole idea that these men are sent by God in revival. To to him was a travesty, because if it was true revival, then they would get out of the Church of England. Well, Gill, he's often known as a polemicist, right? So he, he sometimes I think he gets uh, a bad rap or gets neglected because we only know him or he's only known for, say, the cause of God and truth, that great work, uh, or his work on the Trinity. And But he, he was so prolific. He wrote in so many, you, you rattled off some earlier in this episode, Michael, but we would do well to realize just how many areas that Gill actually wrote on. He was a true pastor theologian, right? He wasn't just a polemicist. Yeah. And yeah, that work, yeah. You... So he, yeah, he writes, uh, we have a, a, a quite an array of his sermons. Uh, one of the most touching is his funeral sermon for his daughter, Elizabeth, which he preached. Oh, I haven't read that. I'd yeah, like that, to read that. Wow. You know, it was that sermon, Timothy George refer, refers to it in the article you mentioned earlier. And it was that sermon that really kind of gave me a sympathy for, for Gil. I, I saw another side to Gil. Um, his heart's breaking mm. uh, at mm. the burial of his 12-year-old daughter. Um, it's been, it was interesting too if you if you look at the front cover of the the pamphlet in which her, the funeral sermon is printed, um, it's it's a couple of days just before the conversion of the Wesleys on the uh, on the on the other side of of, of London, uh, the north side of the Thames, and you just think so here is they're having this funeral sermon, and in fact I think I think Charles is already being converted. I think it was a it's the uh, around the 22nd, 23rd of May when the funeral sermon was preached. And Charles was converted on the 21st and John on the 24th. And you suddenly realize, yeah, that while Gil is bathed in grief, and these two men are undergoing their conversion. Um, but uh, yeah, again, there, there, there is a fair amount of Gil's work uh, that is non-polemical. You obviously have the commentaries. You know, on the entire New Testament, Old Testament. And uh, some of the material in the body of divinity, the body of practical divinity, rather, is just exquisite, absolutely ex spiritually exquisite, as Gil talks about the, the virtues of the Christian life. Well, I love that about Gil, my exposure to Gil. See, I didn't, I, I didn't come, to, I came to him more through his body of practical divinity. So I've always seen yeah. him as a very practical theologian. That is this merging of doctrine for life. So I, I've never kind of understood the people that just, you know, see him as this hyper Calvinist that I've always read him as a pastor. And probably because it just in my limited exposure to him, I've been exposed more to his pastoral theology mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. than than his polemics. Uh, but that's that's something I think Gill for today, as we think about Gill for today, to see him more than uh, the cause of God and truth, as good as that is, I mean, see him for that, but also see him for his his body of practical divinity. Yeah, in fact, um, uh, later this evening, interestingly enough, I've got a meeting with some brothers who are, were talking about the possibility of printing some of Gill in small booklet form, 
Um, okay. doing an abridgment actually of the body divinity and practical divinity. And then some of the sections we don't put in the abridgment, just kind of bringing them out as uh, small booklets. And some of them would be definitely the, the spiritual characteristics that Gill lists and develops at great length in the first few chapters of the body of practical divinity. That's great. I'm so glad you're doing that, Michael. Again, leave it to you to be resurrecting these 18th century Baptists that people need to know more about. Uh, are you doing that with H&E Publishing? I mean, who's, yes, who's yeah, going to do this? H&E's going to do that, yeah. Very good, very good. Well, what else would you commend to our, our listeners for Gil? Gil for today, what else can we learn well, from him? Yeah, this funeral sermon that uh, Gil preached for Elizabeth Gill, um, Gil's um, um, doctrine of the Trinity uh, is without a doubt. Um, I would recommend getting hold of Gil's, uh, you can get it in a digital form, uh, Gill's commentary in the Old New Testament. You know, I don't do a lot of preaching, but if I do and I've got time, I always look at Gill, see what Gill, let's say, say I'm reading, you know, doing a sermon on Third John. I'll look at Gill. What did Gill say on this sermon, on this text, rather? And I, just, and I know the, these works, Michael, are, you can go to like Monergism and you can find all of Gill's works online. Yeah. But, but what publishing house, if I wanted hard copies, is anybody... Where would I find the body of practical uh, divinity? In, era in um, Paris, Arkansas, he used to have his um, body divinity for sale as well as his commentaries. Uh, beautiful hard uh, copy. It was photolithographed. It was taken from a, a 19th century uh, series of volumes and photographed and then reprinted. Um, I, that's the the most recent publisher of the body of divinity as well as the um, the commentary set okay and, and people don't realize i mean i think if if i'm right correct me if i'm wrong gill's first love was hebrew i mean yeah as much as he was proficient in the greek i mean he was he loved the hebrew language yeah. his work in the old testament is uh there there's a real expertise there yep yeah. so that's yeah, good to know definitely. and people people don't often associate baptists with you know the old testament and Hebrew expertise, but here's Gil uh, modeling that for us. Uh, why did he become a Baptist? Is this a little bit of his, I mean, his upbringing? I mean, he was born um, into a Baptist home? He was born into a Baptist home. Yeah. Uh, and the particular Baptists of his time were were quite large. I mean, it, it no, wasn't... No. No, oh, they weren't. Not in England. Uh, and they're even less in, in, in America. Uh, the Baptist